What's up, everybody? This is your host, Scott Melker, and you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Every week, I'm talking to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, politics, and basically anyone else with an interesting story to tell. So sit down, strap in, and get ready, because we're going deep. Let's go. I'd like to thank my sponsors, Round the X and Voyager, for making today's episode possible. We'll hear much more about them later on in the episode. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. I've been looking forward to today's chat for a long time. As you likely know, I've been a huge fan of Voyager since they launched their product less than a year ago, evangelizing heavily for them long before I even met the team. Once I met them in Las Vegas at WCC, we really clicked and they've been staunch supporters of the podcast and newsletter since. Voyager is a revolutionary product with a revolutionary leader. Steve Ehrlich is the ex-CEO of E-Trade Professional Trading with a laundry list of accomplishments that would make any millennial crypto entrepreneur cower. While he's described himself as the gray hair in the room when it comes to crypto, I think you'll come to find that Steve has a deep understanding of the space and the needs of both retail and institutional traders. So without further ado, I'm thrilled to welcome Stephen Ehrlich to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. Look forward to uh, doing this podcast with you, and uh, it should be a fun, a fun time going back and forth. Awesome. So let's just start from the beginning. What drove you towards a career in, in finance? Was it something you were interested in as a child, something that you sort of uh, gravitated towards in college? Well, what's the beginning of this career? You know, it really started with my dad more than anything else. He, he always put in my brothers and in, in my head that, you know, learning numbers and trying to go to college to become an accountant was the best way to learn a business. He was a, an accountant doing, geez, thousands of tax returns during, uh, during tax season, ba- barely saw him. But he drove into us that if you understood business and the numbers and accounting, you would, you would learn everything you need to know about finance and that would lead your career. So that's what got me started. Went to college for, uh, for accounting, uh, loved it. Uh, although it was difficult, loved it, and it got me my kickstart into finance. That's really interesting. I, I remember you told me though you went to college in in Pennsylvania, right up in Amish country. So you were going from being, as you told me, a, a New Yorker to college in Amish country in Pennsylvania. What was that transition like? Oh man, you know, roll over at you know eight o'clock in the morning to get ready to go to class, and you got the the breeze goes the wrong way, uh, and boy, was that difficult to get out of bed to to. Uh, walk your way to class, you know, but, you know, used to New York's, you know, sights and smells, and now you're in the middle of uh, cow country. It was great, though. It was a great place. Uh, a lot of good friends came out of college in my fraternity. Uh, the lacrosse team I played on, we were all pretty tight today. And it gave me a great liberal arts background. Uh, so I could learn how to write a little bit. Still can't write that well today. But <laughs> it gave me a little bit more understanding how writing actually means a lot in business as well. So you played lacrosse in college. You guys were actually a really good team, right? Yeah, well, I grew up on Long Island. So Long Island was the hotbed back in the 80s, along with a few other locations of lacrosse. Now it's everywhere, which is great to see. Uh, but we were ranked as high as six. I think my senior year, we, uh, we wound up the year six in Division three college lacrosse. It was a great experience. I, I pretty much started uh, the last two years and played all four years and got a lot of playing time. I was, was happy to be part of a a team that was really close knit and, and got along really well. And to hit sixth in the country back there was pretty darn special. So we, we were happy the way it all, all turned out. 
it's funny. I grew up in Florida uh, in the eighties, but I'd never even heard of lacrosse until I was in high school. It just didn't exist down here. And I think it started to become much more popular much later. What, what position did you play? I was, uh, believe it or not, uh, I'm, I'm pretty small in size, you know, run about five, seven or so. I was a defenseman. I was a close defenseman, probably the smallest close defenseman in all of college lacrosse my senior <laughs> year. I think that's what RSID said. Uh, it was great. I, I was fast. I was able to stay with small attackmen. Games changed a ton today. Attackmen are 6'3", and not so sure I could actually play today. But back then, it was a lot of fun to, to, to run and stay with those short, small guys uh, and was, was just a great experience. So you were the smallest defender on a very close-knit team. Did either of those things sort of teach you lessons about team building and, and your career moving forward? I always compare, and my team knows this, I do a lot of comparisons between sports, uh, athletics, and team building and, and business. Because I think the, the ultimate essence of a team in the sports, the athletic world, is the togetherness, doing things together working out your problems as a team, uh, helping each other out and supporting each other, even though, you know, you guys might, might not be the best of friends off the field, but when you step on the field, you're all there for a common goal. So it's the same thing that, that really translates well to business. You know, within the four walls of an office, you may not like the person all that well, and you may not want to go grab a beer or drink with the person who sits next to you, but you're in there for a common goal. And the common goal is to, to really build a business, support shareholders, support your customers, and bring something special to the marketplace. And you leave the differences aside when you walk in that room. It's just like when you walk on the field, you leave those differences aside and you work together. And I think that's the number one thing I learned about uh, being an athlete is that you always have to work together because the sum of the parts you know, is far greater than an individual in any any circumstance and that's business and sports. Yeah. There's no I in team is obviously the major cliche for, for sports, but I think anyone who I've ever spoken to who played athletics at a high level and then ended up sort of leading a team has made the same comparison. So I think that's sort of a, a natural, a natural comparison to make. It is. It's uh, you know, it's funny. I mean, I look for in my employees uh, when we hire people, we love athletes. I mean, I think I have, Three, definitely three, maybe four ex uh, Franklin and Marshall lacrosse players on my staff. Wow. Uh, so we all had a common background, all different ages, and I'm by far the oldest. But a lot of the rest of the staff uh, tends to be athletes. And we just think you bring a separate and a different, distinct mindset about how to work with teams and how to be competitive. And you're driving yourself when you're being competitive as much as driving a, a company. That makes sense. So, you graduated from Franklin Marshall with a degree in accounting, and now you're the CEO of Voyager. What happened in between? <laughs> <laughs> a, lot, a, a lot of years. Uh, that's why I like to say, as you, you said like earlier, the five gray hair in the room. Yeah, a lot five of years. years. 5'10", no big deal. Oh, geez. I think it's uh, 33 years from graduation. I can't believe it's been that long. Uh, right? 13, yeah, 33 years. Um, really long time. You know, I started my career in public accounting, a CPA firm right out of college called BDO Seedman. I think we were outside the big eight at that point, number nine, uh, then transitioned into the securities capital markets world in early 1994 when I took a job with a firm called TIR Securities under the leadership of a fellow by the name of Jarrett Lillian. Uh, Jarrett was CEO of TIR. We actually sold that company to E-Trade in 1999. 
which is where I really learned a lot about the online brokerage world and the transition to online brokerage and how to really develop online customers, which was way 20 something years ago. Nobody knew how to, to market to them or even drive an online business. So we were there at the early stages of that. And from there, built my own, did a management buyout uh, from a unit from E-Trade and renamed it Lightspeed Financial and grew that to be basically the third largest broker uh, in the U.S. by trades per day. I think 2008, 2009, we were doing 450,000 trades a day. First broker to actually do API trading with our own native APIs and spent some time there, uh, sold pieces off, left there in 2013 and took a little time off, uh, learned a little bit about more API brokerage with another company. I was a small company I was leading up and got introduced to my co-founders. And, you know, we started Voyager right from that. Well, I have to ask. So you were in a re- relatively safe space. Obviously, you're doing very well. It was, you know, stocks, it's all very well regulated. Now you jump to this very nascent asset, obviously, crypto, and to a space that has questionable regulatory guidance, and you decide to start an exchange. I mean, that seems like a really, really risky move in your, in your position. Why, why did you jump towards crypto and decide to open a brokerage, not an exchange in the United States? Well, I was, I was intrigued by Bitcoin and crypto, you know, probably around 2016, 2017. And when I got introduced to my co-founders, uh, Philip Aton and Gaspar DeDruzzi, and then probably the most notable of our co-founders is Oscar Salazar, the founding CTO of Uber. We got together and, and we looked at uh, multiple competitors and we said, what can we do different uh, around our product that would really bring some, you know, some credibility to the, to the space? And, and since I've always been a guy that takes a different path, uh, when I did Lightspeed Financial, we were diehard uh, professional trading and direct access when everyone was kind of going away from that. I was more than eager to, to develop a crypto product and bring that agency brokerage solution to consumers. Now, can you please just explain the difference between agency brokerage and exchange? Because I think that probably the average listener won't understand the difference, but it's actually a, a pretty, pretty significantly different product. It is definitely one of our major differentiators. We are different than an exchange and you know, we chose the agency brokerage path because what we do is connect to multiple exchanges, market makers, liquidity providers. And so we get a depth of liquidity that is deeper than any one exchange. Uh, additionally, it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to give a best execution quality to our consumers, which is traditional in the traditional uh, equity markets. So we bring that back to the consumers and then lastly, you know, when exchanges have issues and, you know, they go down, I mean, it happens and I've been around uh, the market so long, I've seen it happen. Uh, the big guys and online brokers went down in the, in the early stages, but exchanges have issues. You know, we have multiple exchanges and market, marketplaces that we can actually connect to. So if one goes down, we just send orders to a different place. So we're, we don't have that same issue. And that's why we feel the agency brokerage for consumers is a really important piece of the overall digital asset cryptocurrency puzzle. So how does that work technically? Because it seems like it would be extremely difficult for you to source pricing from all of those multiple exchanges and still be able to execute orders quickly. I mean, what is technologically different that you're doing? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Scott. I think it's really relying on the knowledge that we have as a team from my 20 years in the, in the capital markets at this point, 
and how we built routers and execution venues in the equity space. And especially what we did at Lightspeed when I was there, because I've done this before, is you know we take in all these feeds and we build our own pricing engine and market data. Uh, we also build our entire execution system. So we spent a lot of time in perfecting that router and that execution system and that market data so that we do aggregate all this, just like anyone sees aggregated prices on coin market cap or crypto compare or any one of the other ones. We have the same functionality and we see the depth of the market on that. And therefore we can execute every trade in microseconds, not seconds, microseconds. And that's what we spent uh, a lot of time building and perfecting before we actually came to market, uh, really came to market in July of last year. Everything before that was just testing the, the model and testing our router, but uh, it allows us to, to actually execute 34 plus currencies. Uh, we have a total vision to be able to use Bitcoin or USDC to trade stocks and other things because the router is so integral to what we've done and how well we built it. So to be able to trade stocks with Bitcoin and crypto, you obviously have to believe that they're fungible assets. Is that something that you believe? I mean, do you believe that it will be that interchangeable in the future? Well, we definitely do. I think we, we think it's not only stocks, it's options, it's futures, contracts. Everything is fungible. It's your money, right? I mean, I think one of the examples I tend to give people is Oscar was in my office uh, May of last year. I think it was a Friday or so when Uber went public and we were going through some things and Uber was, was IPO'd. It was down, give or take 10% that Friday. At the same time, Bitcoin started a run. I think it was up 20, 30% between that Friday and Tuesday or Wednesday. So if you wanted to actually sell your Uber stock, take your 10% loss and then jump on the Bitcoin ride, you would never have gotten your money out of the broker to do that. It takes days. You know, right. the trade doesn't settle for days. Uh, get your cash from a broker is like pulling teeth. So right then and there, Oscar and I looked at each other and said, mm, this is the opportunity. This is where we've got to get to everything to be fungible. Is that possible in the current regulatory environment? Uh, would the United States allow you to have, you know, Bitcoin to stock to option trades? Or is that something that you look towards future regulation for? Well, we own a broker dealer as well. And so we figured out a way to make that work. And that's basically using our router. Uh, we're working on how we do that and how we launch it, which, which is sometime down the future here. And I wouldn't say years down the future, I would say probably in 21. Um, but we figured out how to do it with the necessary parts. Uh, that comes back to the team, the expertise many of the members of my team have from being in the regulated broker-dealer world, as well as now in our digital asset crypto world. So it's not that far off. We figured out how to do it. Um, and we'll look to do that at some time in 21. So you have a fiat on-ramp, you have trading, and then the thing that blows my mind is you've now added uh, interest-bearing assets or, or your assets bear interest, uh, many of them. How, how are you able to do that? You know, it's, uh, it took us some time uh, to figure out the right model to do that, but we have a model where we know what we can give customers and allow them to trade. Uh, we think it's another one of those differentiation points for Voyager. We think that the adoption we're seeing because of the two of that, between the interest and the ability to trade your assets without tying them up, has been a huge plus for customers. Because look, even, you know, I think Bitcoin's, you know, flying today and it's up over 86, 8,700. So you can earn interest and keep buying more. So, and flip from one asset to the other and, and buy more and start earning interest on Bitcoin or USDC. 
it's it's a model and it's an algorithm we figured out and with the right billion dollar partners behind us in doing this we figured out how to do it remember we the partners we work with on the interest component are investors in voyager are big billion dollar companies and so we feel really comfortable uh, in working with these guys to make sure that assets are safe. And you're a publicly traded company, correct? We are. It's, uh, it's really brought a lot of credibility to what we're doing and transparency. It's one of the reasons we actually went public is for the transparency. Uh, but, you know, our numbers are, are audited annual uh, by an independent third party auditor. Uh, we have a June 30th year end, so we're about ready to start on that uh, year end audit. But at the same time, we have to file quarterly reports would show customers, you could go to our, our financials and you could see that the number of customer assets we have and the balances we keep on our, our books as well. So make sure your, your assets are safe. Oh, let's talk about that. How do you make sure that people's assets are safe? Obviously, crypto is the Wild West and people have heard the nightmares and horror stories of being hacked and people losing hundreds of millions of dollars in, in the blink of an eye. How do you protect people's, people's crypto? Well, I'll give you the high level because if I give you the low level, then uh, and all the details, that would that wouldn't be fun. Uh, it would it would be it'd be too much detail. Uh, but it's really intricate how we do it, and it's really based upon a lot of the partners that we work with, uh, and making sure that we don't custody all our assets in one place. We have multiple locations. Uh, we have a bunch of security in place on the movement of assets. Um, and then even, you know, that, that even dribbles down to the consumers when they're taking assets off the platform and their assets, we're extra, we do a whole bunch of extra procedures to make sure that uh, you are who you are and it's safe and be able to move those assets because security to us is one of the most important items. And we want the customers to know that their assets are safe, but you know, it really starts with moving the assets and having the assets in multiple custodians and not one place. Yeah, I mean, one huge hack uh, really eliminates all of these positive things that any you know broker and exchange is doing. So it seems like it would have to be literally the most important thing that you do, I would imagine. Um, so it seems obviously you've made a huge bet on Bitcoin here and on crypto. So what is it about, I guess we could talk about Bitcoin individually. What is it about Bitcoin that's uh, convinced you that it's worth pursuing this business and building this business around it? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's uh, as people know me uh, and they start to know me, I am a definite risk taker in business uh, from, you know, I started as a public accountant, so I guess that's not risk at all. That's, that's boring. Um, but it gave me a great education. Then to a broker in TIR securities, that was risky. We were doing soft dollar brokerage, which was most people don't even know what that is back in, in the nineties. And then to online brokerage early. So when I saw Bitcoin and I saw cryptocurrency, I, I spoke to a lot of people. I did a lot of diligence. A uh, couple of friends of mine that are now investors in the company, uh, we took rides. I used to uh, run a hockey program uh, in Connecticut. And one of my other coaches, a uh, good friend of mine, investor, took me on a trip once to Long Beach, Long Island to, to help him coach a game. And he gave me a tutorial on, on Bitcoin. And I was extremely intrigued. And so I thought there was an opportunity for some other global currency to have an impact that far outweighs what we do with the dollar. And I think what I mean by that is that, you know, 
monetary policy set by a government that is changing every four or eight years and is something that you know needs to be supplemented over time here. And that's what I was getting out of this. And I think what we're going through now is playing the case to everything you know that was written 10 plus years ago and the thought behind Bitcoin. We, didn't, we needed an event to actually make people realize that. And so now I think that you know, that thought process and is starting to play out. And my, my, my friend was, was early, much earlier than me, convincing me that this was the way to go. And so that was the risk I took. And, and now I think it's really playing out. Is your friend extremely wealthy from investing in Bitcoin early? <laughs> uh, not really, because uh, I think he got, you know, as, as most people, he wasn't, he held, but then he had peaks and then he sold. Same and, as everyone else. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there's, you really had to have, uh, I'll say it, balls of steel to stay in for real, you know, for, for the ride from where it was to 20,000. Right. And, you know, yeah. people have different points where they're comfortable with the money they make. Um, and it's all relative to where you sit in your earnings world and how much you have. So uh, everybody's different, but he was an early adopter. It's funny because I always hear people sort of joke, or I should say even trivialize the early adopters and uh, they just got lucky and you know they just happened to be there at the right time and buy, but you touched on it. To, to be there early is a very small part of the battle. It's to actually hold it through the insane volatility and, and all these things that have happened in the world and still be there at the end to, to sell it. And I think very few people, even the early adopters, saw it all the way through. Um, I, know, I know very few. So touching on that, there's a lot of other things that we've discussed in the past about Bitcoin. You're talking about the present global economic crisis, the endless money printing. Is the fact that Bitcoin is deflationary, would you say, is that one of the huge selling points for it? Yeah, we, we, we have a thing that we're, we're coming out with a, from Voyager about certain properties of Bitcoin. And the anti-inflationary is, is, you know, is really important to us. We really think that, that Bitcoin is something that will over time replace you know, much of the dollar world. And I think we're, we're, we're excited about that. We like the Bitcoin independence. Uh, obviously, I think it's independent of, of any monetary policy. And the transparency is really huge. I think that's all value props that really help in the adoption of Bitcoin. So it's something we, we think, you know, 86, 8700 today, I, I mean, we think it's going a heck of a lot higher. And that's the bet, you know, we're all making and, and I made in starting the company. So you've been watching markets, obviously, for decades. What the hell is happening right now? <laughs> I have to ask you because it's so absurd to watch the stock market rage while GDP is contracting and people are losing jobs and all these obvious, you know, downside to the economy. What's going on? I mean, I am shocked by no stretch of the imagination that the market is as high as it is right now. I, I truly believe we're going to have another correction here. So um, do I. I, I just don't, I don't see you know, it's artificially high right now. I mean, we're printing money. Um, you know, the, the PE ratio is even, I was talking to someone yesterday uh, and he said like, the PE ratio is even based on projected 21 earnings is high. Uh, you know, this doesn't make a lot of sense right now. And so we think there's going to be a correction and we think when the correction comes is even more advantageous for, for cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. Um, 
But I mean, I think people are happy. I mean, their 401ks and their retirement savings are, are okay right. uh, for now. Uh, and that's a big piece of why I think this is artificially high. I mean, I agree with you, obviously. I think money printing is is really the key. And then I have to imagine that there's been a lot of people who have just been attempting to short and short and short, and they're getting squeezed over and over and over again. But it seems like it has to correct again. I mean, just like you said, it's, it's at absurd levels at this point. And I, I just, I don't think that it's sustainable at all. And I mean, it's earnings season and companies can't even can't even tell us what their earnings are, right? There, I mean, there's, there's zero... Yeah, they're canceled. All everyone's is pulling back on their guidance. I, I turned over my shoulder to see where CNBC and where the S and P is now. It's it, it's high twenty nine hundreds. We're off only ten percent off the all time S and P high. Makes no sense. It's pure market analytics and price discovery shows that it shouldn't be here. But you know who am I to say? I mean, I, I tend to say when when. I bet on individual stocks and stuff like that, and, and options go against me because I'm always wrong. And Best counter indicator is always yourself, right? Yeah, and 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 I mean, I left my money in in my 401k, um, and I just haven't touched it since Same. this whole happened. Uh, so that makes me happy where it is, but I still believe there's there's a correction coming, and there's going to be a lot of fallout. That the unemployment is just creeping up, and I still wonder. I, I have a big thought here. I don't understand how the PPP money getting into some uh, businesses' hands is really going to help when some of these businesses won't be up and running over the eight weeks that they get the money. Right. So how is it really going to help the restaurant that can't bring all the people back in and they're going to pay their employees, but some of them are making more on unemployment. So are they going to be able to pay back that money down the line? Cause they're not going to be able to use it for what it's intended. And then you throw the New York city factor into it. And yeah. I happened to be in New York city on Saturday, uh, picking up some things uh, from our office cause I needed them at home and it was so quiet. I'm like, I don't know how we get back to normal in the next 60 to 90 days in New York city. I don't see how it's possible with public uh. transportation. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's it's even remotely possible at all. So you just touched on you, you've traded in the past. I was going to ask you if you've actu ever actually been just you know an ordinary retail trader uh, making moves on your own, or if you've always or if you've stuck uh, you know stuck to the institutional stuff and being on the other side. You know, it was I learned early on when I got into TIR. We got this hot tip once, um, and everyone was told to buy options of Quaker Oats. And I think our entire trading floor probably did, uh, including me. I was sort of trading and operations and a few bunch of things there. And we all, and nobody made money. We all lost money. And I quickly learned like, hey, just, you know, take your money, put it in a stock and leave it alone and let it, uh, you know, choose good stocks and let it go. So I dabbled in trading. I wasn't good at it. Um, and now everything I do is pretty much robo advisory stuff because, I've always felt as well, if, if I can't really trade and run a business, and so I'd love to you know, do more research and learn and pick some stocks, but I have a business to run, and my number one focus is running Voyager. And anyway, I, any money I have now to invest, I always put into crypto. doesn't matter. It goes into crypto. Really? That's interesting to hear. So you're, you're certainly not risk averse on your uh, portfolio balance then. 
it's almost a double down, right? I mean, I'm in the business as an agency broker, and then I, you know, I add, I keep adding to my account because I really believe this is the future, and I really believe in this fungibility of assets. and And I've sat with some high level um, CEOs of some investment firms and ETFs and so forth, and it's a common theme. I think it's we all believe that fungibility and being able to you know make things easier for consumers to move is where this is going. It might take longer than we think, but it's it's where the whole digital asset revolution is going. So you guys have also grown through some pretty large ticket acquisitions. Uh, can you talk about those? Yeah, we love, uh, we love looking at M&A. It's, that's also in my DNA. When I was at Lightspeed, I think we did eight acquisitions in seven years and really grew the business that way, plus organically. And, and, we are growing tremendously organically, but the acquisitions for us were, were game-changing. Uh, first was buying the wallet Ethos back in October and obtaining a wallet that we believe in the future, you know, decentralized finance is, is coming and having that wallet to be prepared for that and to take on the technology that Ethos had with their Bedrock uh, APIs has allowed us to bring in crypto deposits and withdrawals and separate ourselves from some of the competition uh, related to who, who trade in, in crypto. So we thought it was really important to have a wallet um, and get the technology behind it. And then the Circle acquisition uh, that we announced in February and closed really quickly and moved the accounts over at the end of March was important because it helped us get scale, name recognition, uh, having Circle as an investor now in, in Voyager is, is great. We're working with them on some USDC things as well. Uh, so we're really excited and I think it's game changing. Uh, I think there's two ways to scale businesses in any online brokerage is, you know, acquisitions and then organic acquisition and just customer uh, acquiring customers, the traditional methods. And I learned that a little bit at uh, E-Trade when I did M&A for E-Trade as well as we, we did a lot of acquisitions there too. Roundlyx.com is one of my favorite companies in the entire crypto space. What they do is they take all your small purchases and they round them up to the nearest dollar and invest that money into any of 25 crypto assets of your choice. They integrate with your favorite exchanges so that you can round up into different assets all at the same time. And they do this all without ever holding any of your Bitcoin. This is by far the best way to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. You'll never even notice that the money has gone from your account and you'll look up one day and hopefully you'll have made thousands and thousands of dollars on crypto. Go to roundlyx.com and use the promo code WOLF for $4 of free Bitcoin after making your first roundup or purchase. That's R-O-U-N-D-L-Y-X.com and code WOLF for $4 of free Bitcoin. Are you sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto, and it's 100% commission free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 30 top crypto assets, and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank account so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they're offering 5% interest on Bitcoin and 6% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 6%. And there are no limits or lockups, which means your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play Store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. That's investvoyager.com, promo code SCOTT25 for $25 in free Bitcoin and start trading today. 
How do you see the future of DeFi? Why is that so interesting to you? I think more and more people are going to want to control their assets uh, and go P2P with with certain amount of their assets. I think the hardest part is the DeFi is for people who've been in the space for a little bit longer and understand that. But the challenge is getting more people into the what I call the top of the funnel, into the, the digital asset revolution. And getting them in doesn't mean DeFi right off the bat. Getting them in means let's get them into a, 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 a brokerage that they're comfortable in dealing with, just like they would if they were in an online brokerage. And then getting them more and more comfortable, and then they'll control their own assets, and they'll start going P2P, and we'll get into a decentralized finance world. But that's going to take a lot of time, too. But I think it's the natural progression. Does that mean that you'll eventually dabble in lending? We have a lot on our plate. Um, and the team is delivering. Every, every time I ask for something, the team is delivering it. Um, and yeah, I think we will, we will partner with the right parties to work with uh, lending assets so people could uh, borrow against their, their assets. Uh, we're also working on products like Margin. So those you know, who are familiar with Margin from the equity markets, you can margin against your, your coins at some point too. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's where we're going with this. We, I feel like we are building the full financial services, digital financial services company of the future here. And being an agency is what allows us to do it because we're, we're able to connect and partner with so many different people and bring the total product suite back to the consumers. I assume you won't be offering 100x leverage. I've seen that game before, you know, <laughs> I laugh about, I mean, we all laugh about it, but I've seen that game before. I don't know how many people remember the FX markets and the hundred to one leverage that was offered early on in the FX markets before it was really regulated by the CFTC. Mm-hmm. Uh, it blew up FXCM on the, on the, the Swiss franc, what was the one that blew it up? I can't remember 15 years ago, 16 years ago. And yeah. FXCM was never the same after that. And the regulator stepped in and say, okay, if you want to be an, uh, an FCM in, in FX, you're going to have to have $20 million of net cap just to begin with, which eliminated all the small players. Right. And so I've seen that game before, 100 to 1. It doesn't work. The U.S. will never let that go through. Um, and it's, it's just it's a crapshoot, really. I mean, I think your odds are better if you put it on the number 15 on the uh, – on the roulette wheel, right? Far I mean, better. Right? It's, it's far better. And you, get so, free, and you get free drinks. You definitely get free drinks. And I can't wait to the time when we can all go back to that uh, <laughs> and be around the roulette wheel or the blackjack table and, and really have any, you know, interaction with people again. But yeah, uh, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. It's, it's really gambling when you think about 100 to 1 leverage. It's not really position taking. You, people may hedge. Uh, some of their positions doing that, but it's really a gamble more than anything else. Yeah, it's absolutely gambling. So we've talked about all the plus sides of Bitcoin. What do you see as the barriers to entry? I mean, I know that obviously, like I I speak to my parents about Bitcoin and and friends of theirs, and they don't really understand what it is, how it works, how they secure their assets, things like that. So what what do you see the barriers uh, of entry at this point are for certainly that generation, but for anyone who wants to invest in Bitcoin? I think you hit a few of them there. So I think people get confused a little bit by this idea of having to hold coins in their own wallet. Because uh, we see a lot of lot being mentioned about that. And like, you need to hold the coins in your own wallet. Uh, and that's why we exist, because we can make it simple, easy, and secure for people 
to do that. But I think it's incumbent upon us to explain to people why Bitcoin and cryptocurrency matter. And it all, it all starts with Bitcoin. I mean, we see most of our initial transactions with customers coming in with Bitcoin, then going to other coins. And adoption all starts with Bitcoin. So I think it's incumbent upon us to, to really get the facts out to, you know, my parents, your parents, you know, a different generation that doesn't understand this and show why and let them dabble, right? Let them put a thousand dollars in an account and see that it's safe and secure and, and they can get some comfort from it. It's how the online brokerage started. Everyone thinks the online brokerage and, you know, started and everyone was putting hundred thousand dollar accounts in. It started with, you know, funding of $2,000 or less. Mm-hmm. And people got comfortable. And I think it's the same It's the same way here. You know, initial deposits are low. People get comfortable with it. Uh, I'm getting my, my fraternity brothers who, who are pretty much all in the 50s now, all asking how they buy their first Bitcoin. Now, the answer is pretty easy. Go to Voyager and open an account. Yep. But I think the next of us, like, they're like, why should I own it? You know, what do I do with it? And I'm like, just hold it. Just, just buy it and hold it. You know, play with the platform, get comfortable understanding, follow it in the news and the media, and then maybe you'll progress to, to other assets, but you'll get comfort first. Get that comfort level, then move on from there. I mean, we've talked about it a bit, but what is your specific pitch to them when they ask you why they should own it? It goes back to the things that we're, we're, yeah. we look at, right? Is that independence, transparency, you know, the government printing money, you know, it's, it's powered by the people, so there is no monetary policy, you know, and the transactions are efficient. And, and soon you're going to start seeing them used more. And I think some of the things that are being done with the stable coins and, and why we're so excited about working with Circle on their USDC is you're starting to see those coins uh, and being built into POS systems in, into where you could actually use it in a bar, restaurant, store, and so forth. And, and trust me, coming out on the other side of this virus, I asked my 21-year-old son the other day, you think any bartender is going to want to accept your ten or twenty dollar bill anymore? Oh, it's disgusting. Yeah, the dirty dollars. So we're 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 getting there now. You could you could just Venmo to the bar and so forth. But I think the use of of a digital asset like USDC or Bitcoin is just as efficient, maybe more secure, um, especially if it's on chain. And I think you're going to see that adoption because I don't see bartenders wanting to wear gloves and wanting to accept 10 and $20 bills anymore. And even if they wear gloves and they touch their face and it doesn't even oh, matter, right? Gross. I mean, they're bartending, they're back there. That's, yeah. a, there's no protection for people in jobs like that, unfortunately. It's just sort of inevitable. And so I agree with you. I don't see how we go back to that. And I think that is a huge case for Bitcoin and crypto for mainstream adoption. What, what other things are, would be the path to mainstream adoption, do you think? Well, you know, I think the, the paths there are trying to get people to, as I said, understand the, the Bitcoin world a little bit more um, and show them how easy it actually is to use. I don't, I, I really get flustered sometimes when I, when I think people are like, they don't understand it. And I think we've got to get more, me, I mean, media coverage of why it matters. Uh, shows like yourself, I mean, that we got it, we got to get out to people and see that there's really smart, intelligent people that are working in this industry. And it's not just, you know, the fad of, of, of people who haven't accomplished things in the past. And, and I've listened to a lot of your, your podcasts and, and there's a lot of really smart people that are working in this space. And I think that's, that drives adoption where people realize that it's, it's not just a tech play. 
It's not just some really smart technology person that is building stuff. It's really smart people. And those, those cover vast industry. And I think seeing some of the institutions starting to come in, uh, the big institutions working in you know, blockchain and digital assets is going to help you know, get that transition for people, the general public, to be interested. Do you think that institutional money is heavily in, in crypto right now? Not yet. I think it's coming. I think people are dabbling. I think there's more in it, a little bit more in it than people think, because I think people keep that a little bit close to the vast. And, of and, course. And maybe the hedge funds or private equity funds that, that, uh, that have money might be starting crypto funds. And we're seeing a lot of that, the private equity funds starting digital asset crypto funds. Um, and so they're, they're a little quiet about it, but I think that they're putting money towards these type of companies. Now, you know, the virus has kind of slowed a lot of investing down, but I do think it'll pick right back up. And I think that there'll be more investing with these digital assets, uh, whether it's a firm like ours, or it's a firm that's doing more custody or a firm that's doing, you know, Ethereum contract, uh, something on the Ethereum blockchain. So I think there's a lot more coming and people are starting to get in. So you think their exposure to the space may be more, you know, the, the old joke that the people who made money in the gold rush are the ones who sold the shovels, right? So you think that they may be investing in companies like yours and other blockchain-based technologies rather than actually just buying Bitcoin? A hundred percent. I think that's, that's what we see. I think people want, uh, want to be part of something. The enterprise value of a company is not just buying, you know, the Bitcoin. That's why we stay away from actually holding it a lot of Bitcoin. We're huge believers, but we don't hold it on our balance sheet all that much uh, just to effectuate customer transactions because we want to be, as you said, the picks and shovels and the infrastructure to effectuate any transaction across the chains. And I think that has a lot, lot of value in the marketplace uh, rather than just holding the assets and, and, and being kind of an investment manager in the space. And we're seeing money go that way. I think more will come. Obviously, I think VC and, and PE firms that invest heavily into smaller companies and startups are waiting for the other side of this, um, and they're trying to support their existing companies that may need a little help at this point in time. Do you think that uh, it's sort of a meme in the uh, crypto community that you know the dollar will die one day and it will be replaced by crypto? I think that's a, a bit far-fetched and a bit very distant <laughs> in the future and a bit of a Mad Max sort of future if that would happen. But I mean... I'm assuming, do you believe that there's, there's room for both the dollar and Bitcoin to both continue to thrive? It doesn't have to be one or the other, does it? I don't think the, the by the time it's one or the other, uh, I probably won't be here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it'll probably be long past my, uh, my expiration date. So I think it, they do coexist. And I think that's where we look at what, what, what we're doing and what others are doing is that they coexist and they have to coexist for a while before one really becomes more dominant than the other, or one can replace the other in this case, like Bitcoin could replace the dollar. It's going to take years uh, for that to happen. And I don't see it in my lifetime, but I, you know, I think at some point you see a global currency as well that's built on the blockchain. So uh, it's going to happen over time, but it, not, on, not in my lifetime. Right. It could be a digital currency that's not necessarily a cryptocurrency, even a national digital currency or something like a global digital currency, like you said, right? I, I agree with that. And I think it's, you know, I think projects that are leading towards trying to get that have stalled a little bit. 
me, and Brad. I think, <laughs> yeah. And I think, uh, look, I think the concept makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I've said it before is that I think if a company that was spearheading that was high on security and privacy, it might've had more legs. Um, but you know, we all know that the troubles Facebook has had, right. but you know, each country in its own right is building out their own stable coin. And think about how easy it could have been in put, sending out the stimulus checks. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, it's <laughs> crazy. It's great. It would have been simple if these were, you know, on the blockchain and, and using USDC or, or Tether. And, and I prefer USDC, obviously, because of our relationship with Circle. But using something like that to get it out, it, you know, it could have been done so much easier and quicker. And, and I think there are going to be people that don't get their stimulus checks for four or five months because they're going to have to get a paper check. Right. And what happens if uh, you never receive it and then you have to try to track it down? Have fun tracking the U.S. government down for 1200 bucks. It's just yeah. not going to happen. Good luck. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's hard to get them to, uh, to get that money out in an efficient manner. Trying to track it down is good. And look, and, and it's not a cut on the government. They've got so much on their plate that if they miss you know, a piece of the population, you know, they'll get to it eventually. But they're like, okay, you know, we got 80% coverage. So that's better than 0%. Right. So they've approved more loans, more small business loans, more loans for hospitals, more stimulus. What is the end game of all this money printing? I mean, we know what it happens in smaller countries like Venezuela, where they get hyperinflation, but those countries don't have the safe haven asset for the world, like the US dollar. But what is the end game of this endless money printing, infinite QE? It's a good question. Look, I mean, you said it earlier, I've been around a long time and I saw the financial crisis of, of, you know, the 2000s, I saw the, the, the internet bubble dump in 2001 or so forth. But even in the financial crisis, there was an end to the printing of the money. I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, there's, they've already admitted that even with money they're getting back from some, some entities that shouldn't have gotten the PPP money, right. that had real viable ways to, to get money in the public markets, way, you know, you know billion market cap companies that could have gotten enough money that way. Uh, there's still not going to be enough in round two to, to, to make everybody happy. And I do think there are, it's, you know, having seen and helped a bunch of people try to file their applications, the self-employed are, are going to struggle here because I don't know if the government knows how to get those PPP money to folks and how to, how to do it. And the banks, I think, are struggling with that. So where does it go? I think we're going to keep printing money. Um, we're going to see inflation. Um, I mean, you're seeing it already. I mean, prices of meat, chicken, pork, just normal food we, we like to eat every day are, are skyrocketing. And it's going to get worse because the pork production and chicken production is way down. And I think beef, beef is starting to take a hit as well. We're going to be, I don't know where this ends. It just seems like we're going to be printing money to try to help people. Prices are going, going to go much higher. And I don't know where the balance comes in. Uh, some cities will reopen and get to some sense of normalcy, but others just, it's going to take a longer time. Yeah, I may be one of the alarmists, but we literally bought a cow this week. <laughs> you bought a, you bought a, uh, is it in your backyard? You feed, no, you know, so what do you feed have, the cow have, that you own? We, we have family. Uh, my, my wife's family actually are farmers. So we, you know, they, they purchased a cow for us and, and we'll continue to raise it and hold it and then butcher it. And we will have uh, 600 pounds of meat. But maybe I am alarmist, but uh, I'd rather have it in the freezer and know that I'll be able to eat meat 
then, uh, you know, be at the liberty of the supply chain. Where do you stand on the spectrum of sort of alarmism with COVID-19 at this point? That's a, that's a really good question. I think I'm somewhere in the middle. And, you know, I'm worried about, you know, the prices of things and the food and getting back to normal. And again, I, I'm, I live outside New York, so I might see things from a different lens than some of your listeners in other parts of the country. Uh, but I have, I mean, my, my mother-in-law who was, who is 86 years old came down with COVID and she was in the hospital for 10 days and got released and she's still feeling a little bit of the effects, but she's, she's one of the knock on wood survivors. Wow. And, you know, so it hit home. I, I saw it. I saw how it affected my kids when she was there and couldn't go visit her or anything. Um, so I have an up close and personal view of it. I sit in the middle because I know it's, it's, it's probably not as bad as we all make it out to be, but at the same time, you know, it, it's bad. It's not as, as not open society. Everyone should be running back to, to buildings and restaurants either. So, and, and another good friend of mine, um, who's also, you know, uh, uh, one of our early investors, uh, you know, happens, his wife happens to be, you know, a CEO of one of the local hospitals here. And I get some updates and, you know, it's, it's, it's not as rosy as everybody wants to think that it's easy to get back to normal. So I'm kind of sitting in the middle. Yeah, I just, I don't, as you've touched on a number of times, especially with New York City, I mean, I just don't see, even if they reopen, where is that level of trust for the individual to go out and expose themselves and their families to that? I mean, I just, you know, I've I never imagined living in a time with this much uncertainty and that it would happen so quickly. I think that's what's really shocked me is that within two weeks of being in isolation, all of a sudden, every time someone walks near me, I cross the street, that fear of other people. It's just mentally is such a strange space for me to be in. I don't know how that affects you, but it's very strange for me. That's where I think I sit in the middle because I, I look at it and I see you know, how, how bad it can get for people having that, that personal relationship with someone who, who had it. Um, but at the same time, I'm not that alarmist when I go for my walk and someone's near me, I don't, I don't fret it that much. Uh, I don't fret it at all. Uh, but then again, I mean, uh, I'm that ultimate, as I like to say, I'm, I'm more of that risk taker and I don't, I like my routine. Um, I don't particularly like being separated from my team, right? Uh, you know, and, and I like to be around people. I'm a people person and this, that's what bothers me. So I think from that, that mindset, I'd rather be standing next to someone having that conversation rather than on Zoom and, and, or Google Hangouts and setting up calls. It's just fun part of, of being living is meeting people. And I agree. I'm right. And that's why, you know, your podcast, you get to meet so many different people. It's just, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it really is. It's awesome. That's, that's what being a person and human and living life is about, you know, going to watch a sporting event and, and becoming friends with the guy, even though it's for three hours, who's sitting next to you at a football game because you both like the New York Giants or something. That's, that's what I love. And that's what that's, you know, that's engaging to me. But, you know, we'll get there again. It just is going to take a little bit longer. So I think we, I think in the middle of all this is, you know, just trying to protect people as best as we can, uh, do whatever we can to help people in need at this point in time. And, and, and trying to get back to some sense of normalcy by hopefully the summer or the latest, the fall. 
So that, that raises an interesting question. Obviously we have zoom and we have FaceTime and we have all these technologies. Um, so if this had happened 10, 20 years ago, it would be a completely different experience. So I think on one hand, we're extremely fortunate that we have this technology and the ability to actually connect, but you're the CEO of a large company with a huge team. Do you see that, has this hurt you at all? Has it hurt those interactions? Has it hurt the creativity, uh, you know, not being in person? Actually, it's, I think it's, it's hasn't really had much of an effect. And I'll say maybe it's even on the positive side for us. A, you know, this is the time where online brokers and, and guys like us grow. And we, we get, our assets are growing, customers are growing. Uh, I know you were on our, our investor presentation call last week and, and we're just growing like a weed. But I think this actually, in a way, has helped my team a bit and helped Voyager because uh, I've, they have a level, I trust my team implicitly. You know, I, I, anything they do, you know, I'm there to back them. So I, I've always given them the ability to be creative. And I think when they're home, they, they're actually probably putting more hours in than they would at, at you know, at, at, at the office, all on their own, like just coming up with creative ideas of things we should do and, and how we should analyze data. And, and I think it's, it's really made us, you know, pretty productive on this. I thought it would take a step back, but I think we're at the same place, if not better. Uh, although there is, you do miss that little interaction with people where, you know, I could tap someone on the shoulder and just ask a question rather than trying to hit it on Slack or set up a call to discuss. But, you know, from our business, it's been, it's been good. Uh, but again, back to, I'm a, per, I'm a people person. I like to be around and exchange ideas and have lunch with somebody and, and get to know them more intimately as a person rather than just an employee. As you said, I was on your call and I was actually really shocked. Uh, I mean, like 10x growth since December. You guys are absolutely thriving. And I think my first instinct coming into this crisis was that anything that revolved around money was going to suffer, right? People were going to be broke. Nobody was going to have jobs. It would be uncertain. But it seems like more people are buying, more people are investing, and more people are using brokers and exchanges than ever. I, I didn't expect that. Why do you think that is? You know, I think that first, when you're sitting at home all day and you're working, but then now the, the day's over and you're going to just go to do what, what, whatever you want to do post-work hours, uh, there's just so much TV you can watch and so much Netflix or Hulu or Apple TV that you can watch. And you have your mobile with you at all points in time. And I think people are like, oh, wow, I could still trade. You know, the market's open. Oh, it's the crypto. I'm, I'll trade the crypto market. Uh, it's exciting. I mean, it's one of the things I'm getting the feedback from a lot of our new users is, wow, this, this app is really addictive. I, I can't stop looking at the prices and, and playing around with it. So I think people look for things to do. Uh, and I think that's a time, even in, in 2007, uh, 2001, on the last you know, crisis, we weren't, we weren't at home. But you know, the online brokerages seem to thrive in that in that instant. And a little volatility helps there too, because people want to see, they want to check their prices more, right? I mean, this, this could move up or down pretty quickly. And we saw that in, in mid-March. Well, yeah. So <laughs> let's talk about that. Um, March 12th, obviously, was the day quote unquote crypto died, as a lot of people said, although as of recording today, it's re regained all of those losses. What do you believe happened that day? And did that make you question the space or what you were doing at all? That was maybe one of the worst days I've, I've, you know, from a personal level ever 
went through uh, watching my app and seeing Bitcoin go 5,000, 4,500, 4,000, 3,800. I'm like, is this ever going to stop? Um, and, and I, you know, I think there, it hit a bottom there. And I think anybody in this industry would be kidding, kidding you if they said they weren't a little worried. And, you know, I think we all were worried, like, is this, you know, is this going to push down further? And is this going to make it like a real afterthought in everything that's going on? Uh, but then there was that rebound. And I think there was, I think their leverage, as you talked about, the 100 to 1 on exchanges. And I think that helped just accelerate some of this downward push. And I think I, I'd be, I'd be really curious as to how some of those 100 to 1 exchanges how much they dug into their available excess capital and assets to, to, to see where they are today. Cause I guarantee you they're in a different position today than they were on March 11th. So I think that really accelerated it. And Cas but now we've so seen like it cascading liquidations, basically just, yeah, I mean, you know, I think a lot of that stuff on those exchanges are probably automated. And look, when you go down, when you're a hundred to one, they don't let you, uh, there's no margin calls. They just close you out. Right. So I think the constant closing out just kept pushing this down and down and down. Um, and then the institutional guys probably freaking out a little bit and pushing down a little bit more until there finally was enough liquidation there that people said, okay, you know, maybe there's, this is the bottom. And I think that's what, what happened. Uh, but it's a, it was a scary time. And, and I think uh, that whole day or two was about, you saw Bitcoin go down. You saw, I think the NBA canceled, yep. or went on hiatus the same day, maybe the 12th uh, with Rudy Gobert and what happened in, in Utah. So it was a terrifying day, I think, around the globe. Yeah, I think that was definitely a peak fear, you know, around, around that time. And that probably did have a lot to do with it. Um, I spoke with Mark Yusko on the uh, podcast not that long ago, and his theory basically was, you know, that institutional money was in and that Bitcoin is an exceptionally liquid asset. There was no bids on the bond books. So a lot of that was probably a few huge players who basically needed to sell Bitcoin to raise cash. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know uh, how much water that holds, but that seems to be the prevailing theory that I'm hearing from most people in sort of in your shoes. It, it's a, it's probably somewhat accurate uh, on that. Again, I think it's part of the reason why I say that institutions are coming and some of them are in and they don't really let you know. Right. Um, because, you know, they, their core business is still bonds, equities, options, futures. And, you know, they, they keep this part a little bit quiet. So it's, it's definitely conceivable that that was it. Um, you know, I was more concerned about just, is this, you know, is this going to be going down to 2000? Our customers are going to, are, are going to be hurt by this. Are they going to lose faith in, in crypto? And then we slowly started seeing it come back and we're more than, than double where it was there. I think, like we said earlier, maybe 86, 8,700 when we started the podcast. So, um, and I think it's going to rise. It's going to continue to rise leading into, leading into the having. You'll be happy to know that it's almost 9,000 now. <laughs> just oh, while we've been, awesome. just while we we've been talking. On. Yeah, if we stay, stay on, on we'll, get to 10. Well, well, we might actually uh, hit the all-time high if we stick around long enough. <laughs> uh, so 
all that said, it has recovered. Um, you guys are, are absolutely ripping. So what can we look forward to in the future from Voyager? You touched on it earlier, bringing margin and things like that. What are, what are the big sort of ticket items that you're looking to add before, before we go? Yeah, well, margin is definitely one, one piece we're working on uh, in the background. We're working on the utility of the, uh, the, the Voyager token um, as well as we start to build out some programs and re- rewards programs around the token. Uh, we're seeing a huge adoption of people wanting to hold that token. Uh, we're close to, to launching our recurring buys and baskets. That's coming on probably in the next four to six weeks. So people right. can just... Uh, just add, you know, $10 a week or whatever they're comfortable with to get a dollar cost uh, averaging on that. Um, those are some of the big things we're working on. As I mentioned, you know, we're, we're the total cross crypto to crypto, crypto to stocks, crypto to options. At the same time, we're trying to launch new products for consumers. We're also working on things like that in the background, which takes a lot of testing and a lot of work to do. Right. Uh, as I mentioned, we own a broken dealer, so we've got to get that you know, set in the right place with the right questions to ask people as well. Because as much as we do the KYC and AML checks on the on the uh, Voyager Digital LLC business, which is the, the money service business, the broker business has even more questions that have to be asked related to suitability and so forth. So there's a lot to get done on that part. Uh, we're also looking at international fairly well and in depth about how we get to uh, how we get to the the foreign markets. Our first foray will probably be Canada. We're public there, so we want to bring the product there. Uh, we're working with different parties there and different banks to bring that in at some time in, in 2022, uh, 2020, not 2022, but bring that in this year. Uh, so, yeah, we've got a lot working on. Team is, team is you know, led, led by uh, our COO, Gerard Hanchi, and he does a great job. He really does. He's, he's also our trading guru. So he's also the one that kicks out a lot of good charts and so forth, uh, to let people know on his Twitter feed what he thinks is happening in, in crypto world. Yeah, he's awesome. Well, one of my favorite features you guys have is the integration with Roundly X. And I know that sounds like an ad because you guys are obviously both <laughs> my, my sponsors here, but that's, I mean, being able to dollar cost average blindly into Bitcoin and actually I'm doing Ethereum mostly at the moment has been just like the most fun and profitable thing and doing it with no fees with you guys, obviously. But I've made more money doing that almost than trading because I've been buying every single dip, including the move down to the 3000s. You know, Andrew and the team over there have done a great job and we're so glad that they're partners of ours. Um, and it is, it's, it's, it's been very valuable to have them as partners and, you know, the customers get to utilize our services through a different different front end. That's totally fine with us too. I mean, I think that's one piece we haven't yet touched on, but we also have, uh, we're, we're close to launching uh, two major relationships. Uh, one is with Market Rebellion and Pete and John Nigerian uh, they're, and their they're third partner, Dirk. Uh, they're writing to our APIs and, then, and they've been public about it on their Twitter feed that you'll be able to get their education, their analysis on cryptocurrencies and trade through Voyager. Um, and then Professional Trading Solutions, which is a professional trading platform for really active users that written to our API. And they have a great product in Sterling Trader and Lightspeed Trader, which was my old business. And you know now customers, but by you know over the next two months, we'll be able to use that platform and trade through our infrastructure. Same, no fees, but they're using different, they're using a user interface that makes them happy and they're used to using. Oh, that sounds amazing. So where can everybody follow you, follow Voyager and keep up with you after this podcast? 
Uh, best way, you know, Voyagers uh, on our Twitter feed at Invest Voyager, uh, and mine's at Earls15. E-H-R-L-S-1-5. That's the two places. You can follow me there, follow Invest Voyager. Uh, if you're not following you, they better be following you too. Seriously, uh, come on, guys. Yeah, I mean, it's a great feed. And look, I think it's, you know, you do a great job in promoting promoting cryptocurrency across this industry. And I think, it, you know, we really need to do that and work as teams to do that. And whether it's my competitors or myself, it's important that we get people comfortable about what's coming in the future and, and how financial services and payments and money is going to be moved in the future. I agree. Well, thank you so much for the kind words and uh, we'll look forward to seeing what you and Voyager have for us in the future. Uh, thanks for having me, Scott. Appreciate the time. That's dope. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at Scott Melker to continue the conversation. See you next week.